We're so glad that you're here this morning. I want to share with you a couple of updates. I just mentioned uh, the Beulah on the Road. We, we had a wonderful week of camp. Uh, if you had a chance to swing by, I want to say thank you to those of you who came into room one and prayed for our kids this week. It was a blast. I think every square inch of our church building uh, was used to its full potential this week. And we had a riot and uh, we're so thankful for the counselors and so many of those kids made uh, lifelong decisions to, to uh, identify themselves with Christ, and they had a blast doing it. I think a few of them fell asleep before they even made it home. They were that tired this week, and so, and I think a few of their parents felt that way too, actually. Um, we're excited about a few things that are on the horizon here. I want to invite you uh, to join um, a group that's going from Hope on Tuesday evening to the Indians game. I guess it's the Guardians game now. Do we say that? Is it too soon? It's a little too soon. Oh, it's too soon. All right. So, you're like, I'm not changing. All right, that's good. But uh, we're excited about that. And this is not just a men's event, but um, you're all welcome to participate. You can go to hopebrunswick.org slash events to find out how you can purchase tickets. I believe that there's a carpooling option for you. And uh, this will be a really fun night. And I hope that you're able to join with that. Tickets need to be purchased today. And we don't want you to miss out on that. We're also thankful, you know, we're a part of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and we shared last week uh, one of the things that we're doing as a church family is helping to raise support for what we're calling the Sea Asia Tool Fund, our Southeast Asia Tool Fund, uh, for our missions missionaries, Brandon and Stephanie. You've gotten to know them over this last year, and they'll be joining us towards the end of the month, but there's still some need there. You can hang out or after the church service. You can head into the cafe area, across from the coffee. I know you know where that is, and uh, grab, grab some more or get some more information, find out how you can contribute to that. I think we're pretty close to meet, meeting our goal there, which will be such a cool thing to see the tools you've sacrificially given towards be used for the kingdom. Uh, we're also excited this week. We keep talking about Beulah. You know, we're excited a couple um, uh, at the end of the month. Next month, we're excited in August to be able to go do um, a fun picnic at Beulah Beach. If you've never been there, it's going to be a blast. And this week is their uh, missionary conference, their Bible and missionary conference at Beulah Beach. And um, it is in Vermilion, Ohio, beautiful place. And um, there's no charge for this if you're not going to spend the night there. And so we'd love to invite you to join. Your pastor, Jim Garber, will be leading worship for this week. And so uh, you're all very welcome to participate. You can check out more information at BeulahBeach.org, um, BMC, for information about that. We're also excited. We love our kids at Hope Church. We're so blessed uh, to have a wonderful group of kids. You know, we had over 150 here this week for, for Botter. Um, but one of the things we're going to get back to a tradition that we had here at Hope during the 11 o'clock hour next week on August 1st, we're going to invite the kids to join us for the worship time. And then about 20 minutes into the service, like next week, we have the Lord's table, communion, and opportunity to be together as a church family. And then um, so the kids will get checked in, come in, worship together, and then they'll go meet up with their small group leaders and their teachers and um, connect in the, in the lobby area here, and they'll head off to their classes. So it's a great opportunity for us to worship together as a church family. I'm excited about that. So. Uh, there's a lot happening. Check out the website. If you haven't done so, we'd love for you to fill out a green card in the back there to give us a chance to get to know you and to know how we can pray for you. I'm going to ask you to join me for just a second and to be still. And um, there's a wonderful phrase in scripture that says, that says, be still and know that I am God. 
then as we turn our hearts to God's word, as we open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I want to invite you to just ask that the Lord would speak to you today, uh, that he would reveal to you truth about who you are and who he is and what he wants to do in your life. So let's take a minute to do that, and then we will pray together. Father God, our lives are busy. <laughs> we, we run at a pace that often keeps us from being able to just listen to your voice. And I just want to celebrate in front of my church friends and family this morning that these verses that we're going to study together today have had um, an encouraging impact in my life. I felt like you have wanted to recalibrate some things in my life. And I hope for my brothers and sisters that are here today, that as we talk about what it means for us to know our true identity, as it is reflected in the eyes of the God that created us, that you would allow this message to be both an encouragement and that you would spur us on, that you'd challenge us, that you'd remind us uh, what it means to be your children, what it means to carry our identity uh, based upon the fact that we know that you are our creator, that you love us, that you know us, and that you ask uh, of us to, to be willing to be all in for the sake of the kingdom. And so we love you. We thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word that promises us that it will not return void. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So, so it's, uh, it's kind of interesting. I've read a number of articles this week. When we talk about understanding ourselves, you see the title this morning is Getting Over Ourselves. That sounds a little offensive, doesn't it? But if you've read um, uh, articles about the ability for us to assess ourselves, to evaluate ourselves, to accurately interpret who we are, our gifting, our calling. It's difficult. And, and let's be honest that for some of us, we don't have all of the data that we need to completely understand who we are. I love what Ann Lander says you know, when she says, know yourself. She says, don't accept your dog's admiration as conclusive evidence that you are wonderful. I love that in that phrase. Um, you know, it's funny. If you've ever been to a carnival or a Cedar Point and you know those skill games that they have, you know, the ones with the pop bottles and the, those are a great evidence to us that we are do a terrible job of assessing our skills, right? So on the outside, you walk in and you know they make lots of money off of people like me, but I walk in and I think, yeah, sure, I can hit that basket from, you know, it's almost like a four-pointer on the outside with the rim that's extra small, and I haven't shot a basket since I was like in junior high, right? Or, or the, the person who says, you know, I'm sure I can throw that ball that can knock those three milk cans off of the table, uh, and I haven't thrown a ball, uh, but I do watch lots of baseball on TV, right? You know, you guys get it, right? Like that, that our ability to assess our skill isn't always as accurate as that, as um, we, we like it to be. And I love, this even happens to pastors, believe it or not. And I love, I love this story that there was a young pastor, no relation to me, that had um, a gift for preaching and his church began to grow. And as his church grew, um, his head followed suit, right? And, and after he had delivered his homiletical oration one Sunday morning, one of his loyal parishioners, a sweet older woman in the church, earnestly shook his hand afterwards and she said, you're becoming one of the greatest expositors of this generation. Well, that sounds beautiful. And as he tried to, sque as, as he, um, tried to squeeze his hand into, uh, I'm sorry, this is funny. As he tried to squeeze his head into his car after church that day, um, his wife was there in the front seat with her and the kids were stuffed in the back seat and he could not resist 
sharing the story proudly with his, hun- his wife. He says, honey, you know, Miss Franklin, she told me that she thought that I was one of the greatest expositors of this generation. And, and as he says it, he's kind of waiting for her to respond. And uh, his wife doesn't, doesn't say anything. He's kind of fishing for this affirmation. And he glanced at his silent wife with a weak smile and he prodded, I wonder just how many great expositors there are in this generation. And unable to resist the opportunity to set the record straight, she says quietly, honey, one less than you think there are. <laughs> I love it. You know, you know this, this idea of who we are and having an accurate understanding of who we are is one of the most difficult things that we can experience in our life. In fact, I think we live in a time period, uh, one, uh, one author calls it egotism or egoism, a time period of egoism where we're aware of who we are. In fact, we're reminded often deceptively that the world revolves around us. And you think of some of the slogans of our day, have it your way, do yourself a favor, look out for number one, you owe it to yourself. Uh, I think we do live at times in a me first generation, I deserve it. You even hear phrases like fight for your rights. And then we've talked about the, the trinity that is so sacred in our culture of me, myself, and I, right? That we're aware of ourselves these days. And I think it's important for us to remember that when Jesus came to the earth, the apostle Paul described his ministry this way. And I just want to give us a dose of perspective that he wants us to have. He says, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And I love these, these words in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, that they're, they remind me that part of my responsibility as a Christ follower is to kind of get over myself, to, to allow myself to remember that insecurity and pride are actually very close to one another. And when you think about the concept of insecurity, am I enough? Or you think about the concept of pride, that are others measured up enough to me that both of those at the core, it has me at the center of this. And it's interesting to think of those words. Pride and insecurity are very similar. Pride says, I am more than. Insecurity says, I am less than. But both are making far too much about me. At the, at the core of this message this morning, we will be reminded from the Apostle Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that it's really not about me. And, and it, the goal for me is to not allow myself to get in the way of what God wants to do in and through me. For some of you, you listen to this message and you say, yeah, that's not for me. I'm, I'm doing pretty good in this area. But I found this to be so convicting. You know the author, Robert Louis Stevenson, He said this phrase, and I feel this is a wonderful test of if we're getting caught up and having a false perception of ourselves. He says, notice how you listen to others being praised. And when that happens, until you can allow that to happen without indulging in distraction, you still need that impulse to be brought under the grace of God. What he's saying is, when you hear someone else being affirmed in your presence for being beautiful or kind or wise or, or smart, what, whatever it is, and you listen to it and you go, what about me? There's a part of us that reminds us that maybe the me part of this has gotten out of hand. 
I want to remind you, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to cheat a bit and kind of go to the back of the book today and look at the answers in the back of the book to answer the question, why is Paul writing this hard message to a church that he says that he loves? And he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, I do not write these things to you to make you ashamed. Let me remind you of this. Satan is in the shame business He likes to remind us of our shortcomings, the things that we've done wrong, the things that have fallen short. But do you remember that that in understanding what it means to be forgiven by Christ means that we understand that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That that, That there's the ability for us to say that as far as the east is from the west, our transgressions are before the eyes of the Lord. So he's not in the shame business. So don't misinterpret this message this morning. It's not here to add a layer of guilt to your Sunday afternoon. But he's saying, I write this to you, not to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. That word admonish is actually the word that we often translate as counseling. Um, It is a Greek word that is often associated with nathetic counseling, the idea of helping a person change their mind so that they can function correctly, that they can think rightly. And so here he's saying, I'm just trying to push you, trying to spur you on. I'm trying to help you to understand at its core what, who you are. And he's going to show us this by his own example, by showing how he's identified who he is in Christ. And it's so helpful for me to remember this morning that the very man who's penning these words had things in his ledger that he would have been ashamed of that he had things in his life. Remember, he was the persecutor of Christ followers. And now God has redeemed his life in such a way that he can declare this. This isn't about shame. This isn't about guilt. Do you guys have any family members that are good at dishing shame and guilt? Some of you? That, that Satan does that so well. But what he's saying to you is, I want to spur you on to be understanding. And then he says this, like, a, like my beloved children. Remember, the apostle Paul planted this church in Corinth His desire is to see them thrive. And over the next several chapters, we're going to see him be very specific with this church. And he's just got one really simple message for them. You guys are just acting normal. (laughs) You're just doing life the way the world does life. And you have the capability of being so much more. And so as we see these words, look back with me now in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What we're going to see is the first point this morning as Paul admonishes us and warns us that we need to get ourselves, get over ourselves, or we'll get in the way of what God wants to do. But we're going to see that he's challenging us to see yourself, see ourselves accurately. He says this in chapter 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So he's giving them an example of how you ought to look at the apostle Paul. He's saying to them, here's how you should see me. And this word is really interesting in Greek when it says, this is how one should regard us as servants. Usually in the New Testament, there's a word doulos that we see for the word servant, and it can mean bond servant, and it's a very specific type of servanthood. But here he uses a different word. It's called, uh, it's hyperitai. And this word literally is describing a servant that is inside one of those ships. We have a picture of it that's inside one of those ships where their job is to row. 
And, and their job, do you guys notice there's no balcony on this? There's no, there's no you know, window that you get to glance outside of this. But what Paul is saying is when you see me, what I want you to remember is that I see myself as a rower for Christ. And, and ultimately, the only way that that works is when the people who are on that ship, remember, they have no idea what direction they're going. They have no idea what the mission is even, but what they're doing is inside that ship is they're obeying the call of the shipmaster that's down there with them. And when they do that, they don't end up going in circles, right? Because of their obedience to the master. And he's saying, this is how I see myself. I see myself as a man who's called to row. Why? Now, now remember, he's the founder of this church. He would be worthy of honor because of his investment in this group of people. He's already called himself their spiritual father. But really what he's saying is, I see myself as a faithful servant at the oar, obeying the leadership of my king. Church, we can learn so much about that when it comes to understanding what God wants of each one of us. That that this isn't about our ego, this isn't about our position, this isn't about our honor, this is about our obedience to what he wants us to understand, and that is he is at work. So in verse two, when he says, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful, this isn't about being successful, this isn't being about being successful in the eyes of those who are around us, or even the other people who are rowing with us, it's about being faithful. I have a job, God's asked me to do it. I want to commit to this. You have a job. There's a responsibility. And I keep saying this, but it's important for us to remember. If anybody neglects their job in that process, the whole group suffers, right? It doesn't work if we neglect what God's called for us to do. So when I say that God has given you a unique responsibility, I love this phrase. Seeing ourselves through God's eyes gives you and I an accurate understanding of who we uniquely are. We have a unique space on God's mission. We have a unique calling. We have a unique purpose. And the, the command here that Paul echoes is that we ought to be faithful like a steward. Any parent who has ever taken their child and given them to a babysitter understands what it means to entrust someone with something that's precious to them. And the Lord has that same view for each one of us when he talks about his church being entrusted into our care that, that we have the privilege as faithful investment managers to be able to be a part of what God's doing. We care for what is precious to him. Verse three goes on to say this, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself or I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So, so now Paul's going to keep this really real about what was happening, what, part, what partly led to him writing this book, uh, this letter that we love in 1 Corinthians 13, or 1 Corinthians in general that has such meaningful truths, is that what he's saying to them is there is a group of people that were in that church that he founded that just didn't like him. They were upset with him. They didn't think he was a good enough preacher. They were, they were upset about his style. They were upset about the letter that he'd sent. And they're grumbling and murmuring, murmuring and they're frustrated. And, and what we're going to see from the Apostle Paul is how he reacts to this. The, the first thing that he does is he doesn't take it personal. 
And, and I'll just share with you as a church family that, that over the last 25 years of pastoral ministry that I've had all kinds of conversations with the people, some of them that like me, some of them not so much. Some of them that are asking questions, why did you do this? I don't understand this. Help me to understand. And, and I love the way the Apostle Paul starts here is that he's kind of saying, you know what? I think the wise thing when somebody accuses us or asks a question or it's okay to answer it and to process it and to listen to it. But there's times when it gets trumped by just allowing yourself to just sit back and say, yeah, thank the Lord that he's continuing to use me. Thank the Lord that he's got a calling that he's placed on my life. Thank the Lord that, that I don't have to spend my days through the cycle of shame and guilt and frustration that paralyzes a person from being obedient to the Lord. Some people in this room are actually experiencing that right now. The definition of shame has allowed them to say, who, can, who am I to be used by the Lord? How can I? Or that there have been people who've come at the wrong time and it's like a gut punch to you that it hits you hard. You lose your breath and you just give up. And what Paul says here is just this hint to us about what it means to be faithful. He says, but with me, it's a small thing. It's that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. In other words, my conscience is clear. But what, what's helpful with this is he admits something that's really important. Uh, one of my daughters said this the other day that cracked me up. They were talking about someone and she said, she said it, it, seems like, um, it seems like their Jiminy Cricket is broken. <laughs> you know, that that their, their internal conscience inside is, is probably not being too accurate right now. I thought that was an interesting phrase. But, but what we notice is that we can justify a lot of stuff in our lives, can't we? We can rationalize things. We can explain away things. We can uh, confess to things and then go do our own thing. And so here he's saying, it's not really me that judges even myself but I allow myself to be understood perfectly, accurately, completely by the God who created me. You know, everybody in this room has had at least one time in your life when you've been misunderstood. I remember this vividly at Cedarville, the college that I went to, that they had this one meal that was on Sunday. It was really a fancy meal, and people were normally, like, dressed up. And, um, and I, um, I, I was carrying a plate full of food, and I had a couple glasses of milk. And um, there, was a, there was a young woman who was in the line with me, and uh, somehow, like, everything shifted on my tray in such a way that one of those glasses of milk, like, took flight, you know, and it was, ah, you know, and, and it, like, turned over in the air, and it just soaked this young lady in a dress, right? And, and so, and I, I have this thing, I've realized this over time, when I get a little nervous, I have the tendency to giggle a little bit, like, ha-ha, and, and so it just looked terrible, right? Like, I just, it did this thing on purpose, and in fact, there was a, a young lady who was her friend that came up to her with napkins, and I could just hear her say, oh, I'm so sorry about that jerk. That's the way she said it, you know, and I'm like, I didn't do it on purpose. You know what I mean when I say that there's times in your life when you get misunderstood, right? We've all been through that, and Paul is actually saying, you know, really, like, the Lord's my boss. I, like, my, my, my calling is something that's, remember, but we're told that he's going to be shown how much he must suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And, and so being misunderstood, of course, we try to, at times, respond. At other times, we try to make it right. And, and at the end of the day, what we recognize, though, is that ultimately, it's God's perception of us that matters. So seeing yourself through your own emotions, 
your own expectations, it really can be dangerous. This is why the question, how does God see me, that Paul models for us is so powerful. And I'll just ask you that. How do you think God sees you? Do you think that the Lord is able to look at you and to be able to say, this is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased? Is, is he able to look at you and say, this is my my beloved son, well done, good and faithful servant. Is he able to look at your life and to be able to see in you evidence of your love for him? I think that for many of us, he can just do that. And Paul rests in that. Am I perfect? Of course not. But are there things that I can learn? Of course there's things I can learn. But there's a security that comes from understanding yourself through the lens of the Lord's view of you. Seeing ourselves through God's eyes helps us to avoid misunderstanding who we are. And in this case, the church in Corinth misunderstood who Paul was. Others can give us false expectations, what, what we uh, think that they want. And in this case, they're upset about Paul's skill in preaching. He's not an orator like they expected. He, they're, they're upset with his style of writing. They're upset with his, his ministry to them. And they're calling him unfaithful. And I, I would just say it bluntly. Paul's answer back is, I don't really care. In fact, uh, Henry Ironside put this in his own words. He says, as long as I'm faithful in opening up the word of God, I'm not concerned whether my sermons particularly appeal to you or not. As long as I know that I'm pleasing him that sent me, I'm not greatly concerned if I displease you. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? But do you understand what he's saying? He's saying it's about the Lord. It's about me being faithful to what he's asked of me. And so, so in a way, what the church is doing at this point is it would be like, like there being, you know, those Olympic judges that have the scores. I know they don't do that anymore, but can you imagine if it's like, like, hey, we're going to judge Paul's preaching. And so we're going to give him, or, or we're going to judge how he dressed today, or we're going to, you know, like how silly they're judging something that the apostle Paul is saying, like, I'm not even competing in that event, you know? Uh, it doesn't make sense to misunderstand this. And so by allowing them to remember that he does not even judge himself. We know Paul takes sin seriously. That's not what he's, he's not justifying things. He's just saying that he chooses to not look at his identity through the funny mirror of other people's perception of him. You get it? He's not using other people's perception or even his own insecurities and his own fears to define him. But instead, what he chooses to do is to see his identity through the Lord. Remember, I said this earlier, both insecurity and pride focus too much on self. Our goal is to think of truth more than about our own circumstances. Our consciences also, it's appropriate to say, can be messed up. So when Paul says this in the end of verse 4, I'm not even aware of anything against myself. I think he's saying, I'm walking in the Spirit. I don't know of any functional sin in my life that is consistent. And in fact, he warns us elsewhere that consent, continuing in sin is like repeatedly putting Jesus on the cross. He's not justifying indiscretions or sins. What he's choosing to do is he's just saying, I've searched my heart there's no active sin in my life. And so in that process, what I can do is I don't, I'm not even aware of these things, but it's not me that judges, but it's ultimately the God who judges me. I, I love this simple yet powerful truth that he found security in the God who created him. So too far, too much, uh, too often, you and I choose to allow other people to weigh in on what they think of us. It can paralyze us. It can leave us 
with an empty attempt to, to become people pleasers, but it does not turn out the way that we want it to. The court of common opinion can carry way too much weight. And what the Apostle Paul's answer back is, I'm going to just let the Lord be my judge. Verse 5, he says this, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time. Last week we talked about this, the bame and the judgment seat of Christ. The time when the crowns are provided because of obedience and following the Lord in our lives. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. So, so what he's saying is, I can't even figure out my own purposes all the time. And I will confess that as a Christ follower who loves to wrestle with his faith, that there's times when I don't wrestle with my motives because it's so hard to understand exactly what's going on. But ultimately, like Paul says, I'm just going to keep trying to be faithful and to be a servant for the Lord, obeying his leadership. He says that these things will be brought in the light. He will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. This is a beautiful understanding of what God wants to do in each one of our lives. That, that Paul understood something that I think we need to be reminded of this morning. And that is that Paul understood that heaven was something that takes place for eternity, but that trying to establish heaven on earth doesn't work out too well. Paul understood that to, to live as Christ and to die is gain. To, that, that there's a part of his relationship with the world that was going to be ultimately very difficult for him. And I think for some of us, especially those of us who've been blessed, I, I will say I'm the most blessed person that I know. There has never been a time in my life when I've wondered where my daily bread was going to come from. I have always had a wonderful home. Over, I've always had, I've been blessed in so many ways. And some of you in this this room and that are joining us online, you, you can relate to that. We've been blessed in our lives. And yet in the midst of that blessing, one of the things that I recognize is that, is that praise the Lord, when, when we uh, make it to heaven, when we receive the blessings of eternity in his presence, that is going to be a whole different reality of God's provision and blessing. The scary part about having things on this life is that ultimately it can, it can have the potential of eclipsing our understanding of what God wants of us when it comes to being his servants. So what we recognize is, yes, believers will produce fruit. Yes, there is a call to be steadfast. But when, and when Paul says this, he reminds them in verse 6 that he's made this application in his own life. He says this, I have applied all of these things to myself and to Paulus for your benefit. In previous verses, he's described them as God's farmers, as God's builders, their servants, and here, stewards. And he says as brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. I love this, this description. We, we know what the line is. This is what God has spoken about us five times already in the book of 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul has quoted scripture directly. And his understanding of God's authority and his truth is recognizing that, that we don't go beyond what God has said. When we go beyond what God has said, we do the very thing that Satan does so masterfully well. And then he says in verse 7, he says, For who sees anything different in you? You know what is important for us? Second point this morning is recognizing what you have been given is a very important thing. It's important for us to recognize what God has blessed us with. 
And he says this, um, he says this beautifully in chapter 4, verse 7, at the second part of that verse. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So God's gifts that he's given you have been given for his glory, not for your own. Verse 8, he says, already you have all that you want. I'm saying to you, church, and some of you can relate to this, that's how I feel about my life. The Lord has blessed me. And the church in Corinth was going through a time period of great blessing financially. People were wealthier at that time than other times in history. And Paul is going to point at this and he's going to warn them in their physical wealth that it has the potential of hindering their spiritual depth when they understand the Lord. He says, already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. And without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that you might share a little bit with, he's almost like the scraps of the table. Would you share it with us a bit? And what Paul's saying here is, remember, Paul's a tent maker. He's making his living as a Christ follower, obedient servant from the Lord off of his own hands. And yet what's happened in the church is they've grown wealthy. And I'll just remind you of a couple of the warnings about what wealth has the potential of doing when it comes to our relationship with the Lord. We're told in his word that, um, that, there, that um, the love of money can be the root of all kinds of evil. We're told this, this powerful image of a camel going through the eye of a needle and says that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And that, that description sounds preposterous. Obviously, no one earns their way into heaven. But the description is a reminder that when we have physical wealth on earth, it can potentially distract us from desperate dependence upon the God that desires for us to be his king. We can confuse what it means to be in his eternal kingdom with what it means to be in our own man-made kingdom on earth. And so he warns them. I remember in Matthew 13, it talks about the deceitfulness of wealth. And I think that for some of us, it's appropriate for us to just stand back and recognize his challenge, Jesus' challenge, describes what it means to be a part of his kingdom like, like a pearl of great price that's so valuable that it's discovered that it's worth sacrificing everything that we own for it. That's how he describes how the servant of the Lord ought to understand their blessings. Now, you in this room, every person here that is a Christ follower, I believe that you've been blessed with, with treasure, yes, your physical resources, also your talents and your giftings that God has given you. He's also given you the blessing of time, and here we're going to see as we study this passage together that he's also given us a message, the truth. And all of those require stewardship. How do we respond to this? What is it that we respond to in the midst of his blessing? So God's gifting is not for our glory, but it's for his glory. Paul understood the end game was not to be a person who focused it on his comfort, but on the comfort of the Lord. And I apologize in advance. I'm going to read a, a longer illustration here, but that talking about that pearl of great price, I love this illustration. It's so helpful for me. So there was a man who decided that he wanted this wonderful pearl. And he asked another person, the man who was selling it, how much is it? Well, the seller says it's very expensive. But how much is it, we ask? Well, a very large amount. Do you think I could buy it? Oh, of course, everyone can buy it. But don't, didn't you say that it was very expensive? Yes. Well, how much is it? Well, it costs everything that you have, says the seller. We make up our minds. All right, I'll buy it. And so we say, well, what do you have? 
He wants to know. Well, let's write it down. Well, I have $10,000 in the bank. Good, $10,000. What else? Well, well, that's all. That's all I have. Nothing more. Well, I have a few dollars here in my wallet. Well, how much? And he starts digging. Well, let's see it. That's 30, 40, 60, 80, 100, $120. That's pretty good. That'll get you some Bob Evans. Okay, um, that's fine. What else did you have? Well, nothing. Well, well that's all. Where do you live? Well, he's still probing. In, in my house. Yes, yes, I, I have a house. Well, then we'll add the house to your ledger then too. And so he writes it down. You mean I have to live in my camper? Oh, you have a camper too? Uh, well, what else? Well, well, I have to sleep in my car? You have a car? Well, actually I have two cars. And so what else? Well, you already have my money. You have my house, my camper, my cars. What more do you want? Well, do you live alone in this world? No, I have a wife and two children. Oh, yes, your wife and your children too. What else? I have nothing left. I'm left alone now. Suddenly the seller exclaims, oh, I almost forgot. You yourself too. Everything becomes mine. Wife, children, house, money, cars, and you too. Then he goes, now listen, I will allow you to use it all. Use all of these things for the time being. But don't forget that they are mine just as you are. And whenever I need any of them, you must give them up because I am now the owner. I love that, that description in, in Juan Carlos Ortiz's book, Disciple. He, he's describing something that I think that as we seek to apply this truth this week, as we understand what it means to see ourselves through God's eyes, is that when it comes to what we have, the Apostle Paul modeled for us that the Lord had provided for him in his life, but that this is the posture that we have with it. This is all yours anyway. So it's all designed to bring glory to your kingdom. This is not about me or my glory. Instead of being a person who holds it close and tight. And I, I love this illustration because really what the Lord asks of us is everything. It's not just one portion of our life. So we admit as we follow the leadership of the Apostle Paul that ministry is sacrifice. Yes, we have so much more than we need. And God expects us to be open-handed with what we've been given. This leads to the third point this morning, and that is to set aside your glory for his. This is what Paul is doing. He says this in verse 9, and it's, it's hard to read, but he, uh, he's almost sarcastic in this description. He says this, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to the angels and to men. That, that word spectacle, we're a show. In the gladiator games that were common in this time, there would be these, these long caverns that those who were going to be sacrificed would walk through and people would pummel them and mock them. Also in the theater of the day, which is also included in this word, there's this part of me says, am I, am I just a show to you? Are you not entertained? I don't get it. He's saying this declaration as if they were able to, to just be a spectacle for the world. But instead, what we see is that Paul calls himself bluntly in verse 10, the necessity of being faithful. He says, for we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are held in honor. You are held in honor, I'm sorry, but we in disrepute to the present hour, we hunger and we thirst and we're poorly dressed and we're buffeted and we are homeless. That's the job description that he describes himself as, as a, as a servant that's rowing in the boat. 
And, and, and I love this statement, and this is really going to be powerful through 1 Corinthians as we study it, and that is, if we fit in too well to the world that's around us, we might not really be understanding who we were intended to be. Uh, Finley put it this way, the church is on dangerously good terms with the world. And I love the way Paul is describing this. He just says, we don't fit in because we're sacrificial servants. We, we labor with our own hands. Remember, he's generously um, supporting himself through tent making. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, literally to be spit in your face is what it means when it, when it says that we've uh, when we've been blessed, when we've been spit in our face, he says we eulogize them, we speak well of them back. When persecuted, we don't repay evil for evil, but we overcome evil with good. When slandered, when we're spoken evil about, we actually respond, we entreat, uh, we do not retreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world. And we refute and the refuse of all things. Literally in the Greek, it implies that this is the stuff that's stuck at the bottom of your shoe at the end of the day. Like he's, he's, he's saying, my identity isn't in how great I am, but my identity is found in understanding how great he is. I'm a servant. And so the calling is to be misunderstood for the sake of the gospel. It's called to be served, or to serve, not to be served. Uh, but, but I want to remind you, this isn't one of those messages that's designed to cause shame. In verse 14, we pick back up to where we started this morning. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my precious and my beloved children. So, so what's God asked the Apostle Paul to do? He, he's asked them to be an ambassador for the sake of the gospel. What has he asked you and I to do? He's asked us to be fools for Christ, the ambassadors for the sake of the gospel. Some won't do it because the pearl of great price is too expensive. But I'll just share with you in my own life and my own little versions of obedience that trusting the Lord with the most important things in my life has been nothing but a blessing in my life. And I think for some of us, maybe we misunderstand what role he's asking of us. Uh, you know, in, as, as a, a servant that's in that boat, I love the musician Leonard Bernstein, the late great conductor of the New York Philharmonic. He uh, made a, a beautiful point after an interview following a televised performance some years ago. They had a Q&A time afterwards, and, and one person called in and asked the question, Mr. Bernstein, what is the most difficult instrument to play? And he responded very quickly with the, the, the phrase, second fiddle. <laughs> he said, I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find one who plays second violin with as much enthusiasm or second French horn, or second flute. Now that's a challenge. And yet if no one plays second, we have no harmony. <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons um, Jesus Christ asks of you and I to do something so different. It's, it's not to be served, but to serve. It's, it's what we were taught in Philippians 2, 3 through 5, where we started this morning. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, not to be served, but to serve. And I promise you, if you do this, 
you will understand your identity in a completely different way. Seeing yourself not through the eyes of the world, which is like a funny mirror. Actually not seeing yourself even through your own eyes, which we recognize is not always as accurate as we would wish it to be. But instead what we do is we allow ourselves to see ourselves through his eyes. And he, we hope and pray, can say to us, well done, my good and faithful. What's the word? Servant. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. I thank you that you promise us that it will not return void. And, and I just pray um, for each and every person that's here as we recognize that these are hard truths, um, not the kind of truths that um, are easy to receive, but they're good. And they're intended not to lead us to shame, but instead to, in Paul's words, to spur us on to action. I pray that that would be our story today. I thank you for this day. I thank you for the Hope Church family. And as we close out this service in a time of worship to you, I pray that your name would be lifted high at Hope Church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.